Welcome to the Jay Martin Show and the pursuit of personal sovereignty. Now, nobody can tell you what the rest of this crazy decade is going to look like. So the smartest thing that we can do with our minds and our money is become our own sovereign asset class. And we do that by building bomb-proof investment portfolios. That's what we do here on the show. My guest today is Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, brilliant macro thinker. We covered a variety of the quote unquote, black swan events and markets in free fall, getting to the most important question, where is Lynn putting cash right now? So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. There is a pinned comment beneath this video where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's free. I publish every Sunday. I love writing it. I share my biggest takeaways from conversations just like this and plenty more. And last thing, uh, this YouTube channel now generates significant ad revenue. I never saw that coming, but it does, which is awesome. So I've decided to donate that cash to an organization super close to my heart called Zero Ceiling. Zero Ceiling's mission is to end youth homelessness, and they do a great job. So check them out if you're interested. Here is Lynn Alden. Enjoy. All right, so I'm back with Lynn Alden. Lynn, it's really good to see you again. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to chat to you because uh, right now it is May 12th for context, depending on when you're watching this interview. Sky is falling, Lynn, and my phone is ringing with a lot of financiers and promoters who typically call me if they want some assistance raising money or getting a story in front of new shareholders. But these days they're calling just to chat, almost like a, a mental health break from the chaos in their offices. And I'm hearing so many individuals specifically in the venture finance market, talk about this is the worst they've ever seen it. And I call back, I'm like, does it feel like March of 2020 when there was this historic crash? Like, no, it's worse than that. Does it feel like 2008? It, it feels worse than that right now. And human beings have a tendency of, of catastrophizing, you know, or we, we look at the near-term events and assume the absolute worst case scenario is going to happen across all boards. So what do you have to say about that sentiment, Lynn? Like where... Where are you seeing what's going on right now from your perspective? Well, so in in the prior few years, we saw you know one of the biggest ever liquidity injections into markets uh, in history, and now we're seeing one of the biggest withdrawals of liquidity from markets in history. And so it's unsurprising to hear that there are rather extreme uh, anecdotes happening because we are, we are seeing that show up in some of the numbers. I mean, the the valuations that that you know unprofitable tech stocks reached uh, was comparable to the dot com bubble. And the drawdown that many of them have had since then has also been comparable to the dot-com bubble. Um, and you know, back during the dot-com bubble, it was not like every sector was affected equally, right? I mean, there were a lot, a lot of the value sectors. I mean, they they might have run into a few years of market turbulence, but they didn't have the extreme, uh, you know, uh, price movements and liquidity movements that that you saw in some of the tech names. And we've kind of seen a similar outcome this time, where the you know what you see in tech and venture is like one of the biggest boom busts ever. Uh, whereas what we're seeing in many other industries is is not nearly that extreme, and right. I think what's also what's also adding to it is that we have a historic bond drawdown at the same time. Whereas in, in most of these environments, you would have seen bonds do pretty well, and so a lot of investors have stocks and bonds, and they both went down. Uh, and so, it, based on something like a sixty forty portfolio, you actually have a drawdown similar to what you see in two thousand eight. Even though stocks, in terms of the broad indices, have not done nearly as poorly, at least as as at this time, as what they did in 2008. 
Right. Now, would you qualify any of this as a black swan event? And I guess this question comes from a headline I saw yesterday or maybe the day before. It was the CEO of Coinbase calling this crypto crash a black swan event, which to me was like a huge red flag because I'm thinking the CEO of Coinbase, you know, crypto crashes cyclically, right? You, I don't think you can qualify this as a black swan event if the CEO of Coinbase is calling it such. It's hugely concerning to me. I'm not a shareholder of Coinbase, but, you know, just generally speaking. So what are there any facets of this crash occurring now that you could honestly say were completely unexpected and would qualify as a black swan? I mean, you can, you can, so a black swan is pretty much by definition unpredictable, right? And and so there are, there are low probability events that occurred. Like, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the Russia invasion in Ukraine, I mean, the, the idea that it would happen right now, this, this year was, was surprising to many, including myself. Yeah. Um, so there's a number, I mean, the, the timing of the pandemic, you know, a few years ago, the, things like that uh, are possible to have in your, in your kind of near-term models. Um, and so there, there have been a number of shocks to the system, but there are always shocks to the system. Uh, some of what we're seeing in this broad drawdown are not black swan events. And so, for example, if you look at the U.S. Purchasing Managers Index, right, the PMI, is basically a measure of uh, economic growth acceleration or deceleration. And that doesn't mean uh, growing or shrinking. It means accelerating or decelerating. And of course, if it decelerates enough, it can outright shrink. Mm. And if you look at that long-term cycle, roughly every three years, you go through one of these gyrations where you have, it looks like a sine wave uh, with like a three-year period. And you know some of those drawdowns result in recessions, other ones result in soft patches. Whenever you have a declining PMI environment, which we've had over the past you know six to 12 months, you tend to get a lot of these uh, impacts of the system. And then we complicate it by the fact that we have the biggest inflation spike in decades. And so the Fed is tightening into that slowdown. And so a lot of things that are inherently unstable uh, get tested and broken. And you know what we're seeing in crypto, I mean, I, you know, it's always hard to say what specifically is going to happen. But for example, the biggest news event there is the, the complete unwinding of the, the Terra Luna ecosystem. And there are a number of us, including myself, that actually wrote ahead of time about the risks with that protocol. And so, you know, I didn't say it was going to crash in mid-May. It was like, you know, it's like, you know, if you're if you're worried about forest fires, you can describe, you know, the conditions for forest fire are looking very problematic, but you can't predict when lightning is going to hit a tree, right? Yeah. And so yeah. there are a bunch of people that are outlining their aspects in the broad crypto space that are completely unsustainable. And that can be separate from your long-term view of something like Bitcoin. But, you know, basically around Bitcoin, there's all these other projects and many of them are, you know, basically they, they seem like black swans when they happen, but they were artificial to begin with. Right. Well, you brought up Russia and it's a good it's a good one because it's so easy in hindsight to look back at an event like that and say, yeah, you know, we saw this coming. Right. If you look at the territory Russia has reclaimed over the last seven, eight years, you could say, well, Ukraine was kind of the next logical step. We should have seen this coming. But in reality, there's no way. And I would even say some of the smartest investors that I've had on this show including individuals like Jamie Rogers or Rick Rule, were really bullish on Russia. And actually, on their most recent um, spots on my show, we're, we're talking about Russian stocks, right? And then this event comes out of nowhere. But, you know, I've heard you talk about this. Russia was, uh, you know, low debt, uh, high or, you know, positive real rates. And if we're in a commodity super cycle, they were positioned really effectively, right? 
Yeah, Russia had a lot of things, strong things going for it going into this, right? Like, as you point out, they have low debt, they have high uh, foreign exchange reserves. Uh, you know, uh, basically uh, being a commodity exporter was was really good going into this environment. And obviously, they have some structural issues related to demographics, related to their levels of freedom and things like that. I think they could certainly use some reforms. Uh, but overall, I mean, they were pretty well positioned. And it's funny because, you know, Russia's had this long-term history of being invaded a number of times. And so there's a lot of people that pointed out that they have certain geologi- uh, uh, geographical concerns that they want to manage, but they're a nuclear power. I mean, they're, they're no risk of being invaded or anything like that. And so if anything, this has decreased their level of security going forward. And so I think that was surprising for a lot of people that they would take such extreme action, even yeah. though there's obviously tensions there. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see how this shakes out. Obviously, Russia has a lot of, you know, they have a, a stronger hand than I think the West realized, uh, because of course, you know, Europe is 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 very heavily reliant on Russian energy and globally. I mean, fertilizer markets and nickel and and it, basically, there's so many commodities across the board that if you just took Russian uh, outputs out of that equation, it'd be a catastrophe. You'd have famine. Uh, and so basically, they have a very strong hand. Uh, so does obviously NATO and 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 you know the the peers there. And so this has certainly added a lot of volatility and tension to the markets. And you know for a while I've had the 1940s comparison where the 2020s were a lot like the 1940s in yeah. terms of fiscal and monetary policy as well as social change, things like the fourth turning, uh, you know wealth concentration, rising populism. All the, there's so many things that were aligned. Uh, and you know I was hoping that we wouldn't see a kinetic war. You know, I was hoping that that wouldn't be one of the areas of comparison, but unfortunately, that's, you know, during those types of big changing periods, you often do see, unfortunately, that it manifesting in kinetic war. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let me get your thoughts on the commodities market, because, you know, specifically the precious metal sector was not one that was favored in, in 2021 and the beginning of 2022, right? This market crashed before everything else a year ago, right? Um, precious metals had a great 2020 and then got really beat up in 2021. So prices were already suppressed. Obviously right now, everything that's not, you know, bolted to the floor is getting sold. So prices are falling across the board, but are you saying, like, here's where this question comes from. There always seems to be a gold bull market right around the corner. If you just follow like macro, right? However, it's, it's always right around the corner. So are you seeing a shift now, Lynn? Do you, would you perceive a shift to occur, capital flowing from you know high growth stocks back to value, back to commodities, back to metals? Well, we have been seeing a shift back to value and, and commodities in particular. That that's been very strong. You've seen like a huge rotation from tech to energy, for example. Um, uh, and you know, year to date, gold is doing better than both stocks and long duration bonds. So it might not be, it might not feel good to gold investors because you don't see gold really going up and gold stocks going up, but gold in particular did outperform a lot of the risk assets. And so it, it did its job in a, a challenging liquidity environment. I think to see gold do particularly well, you'd want to see more, you know, right now, so basically we have a declining economic activity, which is generally good for gold compared to stocks. But we also have the Fed trying to tighten into this, which is bad for pretty much anything other than the dollar and maybe some really defensive value types of equities and things like that. Uh, and so I think right now the Fed's in a dilemma where they have declining economic activity, but inflation is still well above their target. Uh, and so I think the the kind of the the regime shift would happen if they have to stop tightening due to declining economic activity while inflation is still high. I think that's where you could see gold do particularly well. Uh, you know. Uh, 
probably some of these other, you know, Bitcoin probably do pretty well. Uh, whereas anything that still faces margin pressure from rising wages or that faces supply chain problems from, say, China, those things would probably still continue to have some turbulence in that type of environment. Whereas the, you know, the the things that don't have to worry about profit margins, you know, like hard monies, can mm. do pretty well. And then I, I would say, furthermore, I think you know, obviously, one of the challenges to gold has been that it's it's now sharing the market with things like Bitcoin, uh, and then even the broader, you know, even Bitcoin then had to share that with like Ethereum and had to share it with all these altcoins. And when you have every every few years in that cycle, the malinvestments cleared out, right? So anything like like Terra Luna and these other these other things they get cleared out. Uh, and so you know, I think if you were to look at gold and Bitcoin together. Uh, that's not really been a weak market o- over mm. the past, you know, any any really decent time period, three year, five year, ten year. If you have a little bit of both, uh, you know, gold does better in kind of risk off environments. Bitcoin does better in risk on environments. Uh, you don't worry about the market share dilution as much. I know that, for example, example, the folks over at Incrementum, they published the In Gold We Trust report. Yeah, I know they have like a it, it's like a fund that rebalances between say gold and Bitcoin. Right. So they've kind of expanded their view of, of. So I think, you know, if you look at it in that lens, it's not really been that bad of a market for hard monies in general. Right. Yeah. That's that's Ronnie Stofferly over there. OK. Yeah. Um, what are you doing with your cash right now, Lynn? Uh, so going into this year, um, you know, I, I my focus is generally on being diversified, but then tilting to whatever I think is is more attractive. And so, you know, I was kind of highlighting that as the Fed you know, stops their balance sheet expansion as they try to tighten as PMIs roll over, that's, you know, rather defensive environment. And I was upfront and saying, you know, like kind of like that analogy I said before, like you can you can show conditions of a, of a forest fire, but you can't predict, you know, where lightning is going to strike. I was basically saying, I don't know if we're going to get sharp drawdowns or if we're going to stagnate, but I think that risk assets in general are going to have a tough 2022. And so I was leaning defensive. I was kind of emphasizing healthcare stocks, energy pipelines, energy producers, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, maybe a little bit higher cash or tips position, uh, gold. Uh, and so that doesn't mean I don't own other assets as well. Uh, but as basically emphasizing some of those defensive assets that historically do better in falling PMI environments. And I think we're still kind of in that camp. I think a lot of that's already played out. Uh, we've already seen uh, complete turmoil. Uh, basically, it's, it's it's more bearish than my base case would have been, but it's in line with that defensive uh, type of view. And I think that the further it plays out, the more we can go back and look at some of those other assets, right? So some of those really, you know, you can kind of, let's say you look at ARC stocks, for example, you know, five years from now, a lot of them were just inherently bad companies, but probably some of them will bounce back and, and be stronger than they are now, right? So you can kind of, right. I think that's a market where it's been totally devastated. And so you can go in there and see, maybe there are some babies that were thrown out with the bathwater and say, okay, when we do see a Fed pivot, these are the names I might want to have exposure to. So I think we can start looking at the other side of that. But basically, as long as you're still in a falling PMI environment, as long as the Fed still try to tighten, it's hard to really get too much risk exposure. Yeah, right, okay. Now, on a on a social level, Lynn, are you are you um, expecting just an increase in civil unrest around the world, really on the back of food supply? Um, obviously, we're going to miss a harvest season and a seeding season in in Russia and the Ukraine, which collectively, I believe, contribute about twenty five percent of the wheat to the global market. And we're seeing riots already break out in countries like Sri Lanka. So, any forecast on the food market in the coming years? So, in general. Any sort of tight commodity markets are not great for human flourishing, right? I mean, obviously, you want an environment where supplies are very abundant. Uh, whenever they're scarce, 
uh, that can be really problematic, especially if the scarcity is due to supply side problems. So in the 2000s, obviously you had a, a commodity bull market, but it was very much demand driven. Uh, whereas you know in the 70s and uh, here in the 2020s, it's more supply driven, and so that's a that's a very unpleasant environment for a lot of people. And so I you know I continue to have a a bearish view on. Basically, I, I, I'm kind of bullish social unrest, you could say. Right? I'm, yeah. I'm bearish, uh, you know, peace, peace, you could say. Uh, and that's unfortunate because obviously a lot of people suffer from that. Um, I've made the recommendation to my my uh, subscribers, like, in, in aside from the investments, to consider making sure you know your personal life that you are well stocked. Right? That doesn't mean being a full on prepper with your like you know bomb shelter, but it means basically the supply chain is so lean. It's so, you know, there, there's, there's low inventory. There's, you know, basically it's always, it's always like uh, just in time delivery. And so it's kind of on households if they want to have some degree of margin of safety there and some degree of stockpile. And, and so I think this is an environment where you, in addition to managing your portfolio, you do have to manage your, your exposures to various things you might need over the next three to six months or 12 months, however, how much you expose you want to have. And so I am still very uh, concerned with a lot of things we're seeing in markets. And on the back of all of that, you know, we're we're kind of watching the reindustrialization of the United States or just the deglobalization, maybe, right, of, of the world. Any sectors specifically, Lynn, that you feel are coming closer to home uh, the quickest? So those are those are very long-term capital intensive things, right? So it took decades to globalize and it would take years and decades to to begin. Un unglobalizing, or at least you know, halting globalizations. So we're already seeing a strong incentive to want to build uh, chip factories, right? Because that's obviously one of the most critical areas. Uh, a huge percentage of chips are made in Taiwan and, and South Korea, and a couple other countries, and that's obviously a huge, um, you know, national security exposure. Right now, for example, the shortages we're seeing in cars is really because of the chips, and that extends, of course, to everything else. Yeah. And so, whether or not you're the United States, whether or not you're China, whether or not you're Europe. The big question is where do we get the where do we get the chips and ensure that we can get chips ten years from now, and so we're starting to see more onshoring uh, capex around chips. Uh, but I think broadly we're going to see it, you know, in, in more industries. And that you know it's not necessarily just the United States. You can also move things to Mexico and other parts of South America. I mean Latin America, where you know it's closer to home, uh, and you're not, you're not specifically viewing them as like an antagonist the way that say United States and China are increasingly in this kind of you know. Cold War type of relationship, and so I think that we are starting to see more flow back to the Western Hemisphere, but it's not—it's not, not going to be a quick process, and it's not like we just snap our fingers and globalization goes away. Even yeah. the log even the logistics to build all that is immense, and you know the the labor skilling, you know the the skill set that we built in our labor force over decades is affected by this, right? Because exactly. you know innovation comes from people that are doing hands-on work. Right. I mean, you know, like engineers can design things, but a lot of innovations come from building things. If if you just outsource all your building, you start to get worse at innovating in that area. And, mm. and so that takes time to build up that expertise again. I'm with you. Okay. Look, Lynn, thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's great to chat with you, share your insight with my audience. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.